California's Pacific Coast. For decades, the term's westward expansion was on the hearts and minds of Americans as manifest destiny took root. But that desire did not die when Americans successfully lay claim to this area of the West Coast. And even though the territories from California back east to the Mississippi was the source of heated argument throughout the 1850s and 1860s and a major reason for war between the states, once the Union was patched back together, Americans were mostly content with settling in these new lands under a United States flag. But as the decades passed and America grew strong with industrial might, the desire to spread the eagle's wings and expand its markets overseas came back into vogue. Between 1890 and the start of World War I, the United States earned a seat at the table of imperial powers. Welcome to another episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for AP U.S. history students where we examine the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in this episode, Empire America. We examine how the United States got serious about looking beyond its own borders to conquer new lands, particularly in the Pacific. Since the 1840s, keeping European powers out of Hawaii became the principal foreign policy goal of the United States. Americans acquired a true foothold in Hawaii as a result of the sugar trade. The United States government provided generous terms to Hawaiian sugar growers, and after the Civil War, profits began to swell. A turning point in U.S.-Hawaiian relations occurred in 1890 when Congress approved the McKinley Tariff, which raised import rates on foreign sugar. Hawaiian sugar planters were now being undersold in the American marketplace, and as a result, a depression swept the islands. The sugar growers, mostly white Americans, knew that if Hawaii were to be annexed by the United States, the tariff problem would naturally disappear. And at the same time, the Hawaiian throne was passed to Queen Liliuokalani, who determined that the root of Hawaii's problems was foreign interference. A great showdown was about to unfold. In January 1893, the planters staged an uprising to overthrow the queen. At the same time, they appealed to the United States Armed Forces for protection. Without presidential approval, Marines stormed the islands, and the American minister to the islands raised the Stars and Stripes in Honolulu. The Queen was forced to abdicate, and the matter was left for Washington politicians to settle. By this time, Grover Cleveland had been inaugurated president, and he was an outspoken anti-imperialist, thought that the Americans had acted shamefully in Hawaii. He withdrew the annexation treaty from the Senate and ordered an investigation into potential wrongdoings. Cleveland aimed to even restore Liliuokalani to her throne, but American public sentiment strongly favored annexation. The matter was prolonged until after Cleveland left office, 
When war broke out with Spain in 1898, the military significance of Pearl Harbor as a way station to the Spanish Philippines outweighed all other considerations. President William McKinley signed a joint resolution annexing the islands, much like the manner in which Texas joined the Union in 1845. Hawaii remained a territory until it granted statehood and the 50th state in 1959. Next stop, Cuba, which became the nexus of Spanish-American tensions. Since 1895, Cubans had been in open revolt against Spanish rule. Anyone suspected of supporting independence from Spain was removed from the general population and sent to concentration camps. News of this reached the American mainland through the newspapers of the Yellow Journalists. William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer were the two most prominent publishers who were willing to use sensational headlines to sell their newspapers. Hearst even sent the renowned painter Frederick Remington to Cuba to depict Spanish misdeeds. The public was appalled. In February 1898, Relations between the United States and Spain deteriorated even further. Dupuy de Lome, the Spanish minister to the United States, had written a stinging letter about President McKinley to a personal friend. The letter was stolen and soon found itself on the desk of Hearst, who promptly published it on February 9th. After the public outcry, de Lome was recalled to Spain and the Spanish government apologized. But that did little to the peace which was short-lived. On the evening of February 15, 1898, a sudden and shocking explosion <laughs> tore a hole in the hull of the American battleship Maine, which had been on patrol in Havana Harbor. The immediate assumption was that the sinking of the Maine and the non-committant deaths of 260 sailors was the result of Spanish treachery. Although no conclusive results have ever been proven, even to this date, many Americans had already made up their minds, agitated by the yellow press, screaming, Remember the Maine, to hell with Spain. It was time for America to go to war. In April of 1898, McKinley asked Congress for permission to use force in Cuba. To send a message to the rest of the world that the United States was interested in Cuban independence instead of colonization, Congress passed the Teller Amendment, which promised that America would not annex the precious islands. But the United States, even though they were ready for war, were simply unprepared for war. What Americans had in enthusiastic spirit they lacked in military strength. Take, for instance, the Navy. Although improved, it was simply a shadow of what it would become by World War I. The United States Army? Understaffed, under-equipped, and under-trained. The most recent action seen by the Army was fighting the Native Americans on the frontier. 
Cuba required summer uniforms. The troops arrived with heavy woolen coats and pants. The food budget paid for substandard provisions to the soldiers. But what made these daunting problems more manageable for the U.S. military was one simple reality. Spain was even less prepared than the U.S. for war. The situation in Cuba was far less pretty for the Americans. At the outbreak of war, the United States was outnumbered 7 to 1 in army personnel. The invading force, led by General William Shafter, landed rather uneventfully near Santiago. The real glory of the Cuban campaign was grabbed by the Rough Riders. Comprising cowboys, adventurous college students, and even ex-convicts, the Rough Riders were a volunteer regiment commanded by Leonard Wood, but organized by Theodore Roosevelt. Supported by two African-American regiments, the Rough Riders charged up San Juan Hill and helped Schachtner bottle the Spanish forces in Santiago Harbor. The war was lost when the Spanish Atlantic fleet was destroyed by the pursuing American forces. The Treaty of Paris was most generous to the winners, obviously. The United States received the Philippines and the islands of Guam and Puerto Rico. Cuba, however, remained independent and Spain was awarded $20 million for its losses. The treaty prompted a heated debate in the United States. Anti-imperialists called the U.S. hypocritical for condemning European empires while pursuing one of its own. The war was supposed to be about freeing Cuba, not seizing the Philippines. For many years, the Monroe Doctrine was practically a dead letter. The bold proclamation of 1823 that declared that the Western Hemisphere, forever free from European expansion, bemused the imperial powers who knew the United States was simply too weak to enforce its claim. But by 1900, the situation had changed. A bold, expanding America was spreading its wings, daring the old world order to challenge its newfound might. When Theodore Roosevelt became president, he decided to reassert Monroe's old declaration. Cuba became the foundation for a new Latin American policy. Fearful that the new nation would be prey to the imperial vultures of Europe, United States diplomats sharpened American talons on the island. In the Platt Amendment of 1901, Cuba was forbidden from entering any treaty that might endanger their independence. In addition, to prevent European gunboats from landing on Cuban shores, Cuba was prohibited from incurring a large debt. And convinced that all of Latin America was vulnerable to European attack, President Roosevelt dusted off the Monroe Doctrine and added his own touch to the mix, called the Roosevelt Corollary. And while the Monroe Doctrine blocked further expansion of Europe in the Western Hemisphere, the corollary went one step further. Should any Latin American nation engage in, quote, chronic wrongdoing, end quote, a phrase that included large debts or civil unrest, the United States had the power to intervene. Europe was to remain across the Atlantic while America would police the Western Hemisphere. Teddy Roosevelt had the motto, 
speak softly, and carry a big stick. And that policy, particularly in the Pacific, reigned key. It was no coincidence that the United States was expanding westward across the Pacific, for the United States could no longer ignore the largest continent on Earth forever, Asia. The Spanish-American War brought Guam and the Philippines, but these territories, while important, were only supply routes or stopping-off points onto the most populous nation on Earth, China. And even though China still had an emperor and a system of government, the foreign powers, particularly that of Europe, were beginning to encroach on the area. Europe established a quasi-colonial entity called the Spheres of Influence in 1894, and enjoying special privileges in this fashion included Great Britain, France, Russia, Germany, and Japan, Secretary of State John Hay feared that these nations could impede trade practices with the United States. So instead of the United States being on the side table, he devised a strategy called the Open Door Notes, which requested that all nations agree to free trade in China. And while Britain agreed, all other powers declined in private responses. Hay, however, lied to the world and declared that all had accepted. The imperial powers, faced with having to admit publicly to the greedy designs of China, remained silent, and the open door went into effect. Aside from China, Japan was a concern for the new imperial America. In 1904, war broke out between Russia and Japan, and the war was going very poorly for the Russians. But Theodore Roosevelt offered to mediate the peace process as the war dragged on, and the two sides, for the first time meeting in the United States, met with Roosevelt in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Before long, a treaty was arranged. And despite agreeing to its terms, the Japanese felt that Japan should have been awarded more concessions. This began a new anti-American sentiment that swept the island nation, a frustration that would come back to haunt the United States years later, on December 7, 1941. To be able to connect these two spheres of influence, the Pacific and the Atlantic, a canal was inevitable. A trip by boat from New York to San Francisco forced a luckless crew to sail around the tip of South America, a journey amounting to some 12,000 miles. A new empire might require a fast move from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Teddy Roosevelt decided that the time for action was at hand. The question would be not if a canal was to be built, but where that canal was to be built. Ferdinand de Las Esseps, the same engineer who designed the Suez Canal, had organized a French attempt in Panama in the 1870s, but disease and financial problems left a partially built canal behind. And while it made sense that the United States should buy the rights to complete the effort, Panama posed other problems. Despite being the most narrow section in Central America, Panama was very mountainous, and a series of complex locks was necessary to move those ships across the narrow isthmus. 
Nicaragua was another possibility, but that canal would be situated closer to the United States, and the territory was flatter. But despite Nicaragua's width, there was numerous lakes that could be connected to volcanic activity nearby. But politics would get in the way, and Panama was not an independent state. To obtain the rights of the territory, the United States had to negotiate with Colombia, who, for all intents and purposes, owned Panama. The 1903 Hay-Huron Treaty permitted the United States to lease a six-mile-wide strip of land at an annual fee. The treaty moved through the United States Senate, but the Colombian Senate held out for more money. Roosevelt was furious. Determined to build his canal, Roosevelt sent a U.S. gunboat to the shores of Colombia. Big stick philosophy. And at the same time, a group of revolutionaries declared independence in Panama. Revolutionaries being in quotation marks. The Colombians were powerless to stop the uprising of the revolutionaries and ships parked off their coast. And the United States became the first nation in the world to recognize the new independent government of Panama. And within weeks of that independence, the United States was awarded a 10-mile strip of land. The last hurdle for a canal had been cleared. Beginning in 1907, American civilians blasted through tons of mountain stone. And thanks to the work of Walter Reed and William Gorgas, the threats of yellow fever and malaria were greatly diminished. When Theodore Roosevelt visited the blast area, he became the first sitting American president to travel outside of the country. Finally, the deed was done. And in 1914, at a cost of $345 million, the Panama Canal was open for business. The Atlantic and the Pacific were now connected. Empire America grows even farther. And that concludes this episode of Print the Legend, where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I hope you'll join us next time for a three-part series on America in the First World War. Isolation was a long American tradition, but when European conflicts erupted, as they frequently did, many in the United States claimed exceptionalism. America was different. Why get involved in Europe's self-destruction? When the Archduke of Austria-Hungary was killed in cold blood, igniting the most destructive war in human history, the initial reaction in the United States was the expected will for neutrality. But as a nation of immigrants, the United States would have the difficulty picking a side. And despite the obvious ties to Britain based on history and language, there were many in the United States who claimed Germany and Austria-Hungary as their parent lands. Support of either the Allies or the Central Powers might prove very divisive for the new president, President Woodrow Wilson. We hope to see you back here next time for that three-part series. Until then, keep learning.